Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, as well as here on YouTube with video. This week, we welcome back John Atak, one of my greatest friends in the uh, ex-Scientology and anti-cult world and all of that kind of stuff, and really just an all-around great guy. And uh, author of a uh, Let's Sell Them a Piece of Blue Sky, uh, one of the best books on the uh, subject of Scientology and a breakdown of L. Ron Hubbard's history, Scientology's history, and what that's all about. So if you haven't heard or seen that book, I cannot recommend highly enough that you uh, get it. And in fact, and we'll discuss this with John briefly, there is a new edition of the book being put out uh, this year. So... John, welcome to my show. Thank you. It's good to be here again, Chris. Yeah, always good to have you on. So let's uh, let's talk about that first. Actually, this this new edition of the book. I just was thinking about that a minute, a second ago. Well, what's what's the new edition? It, basically, this is terrible. Um, we found that that there were five pages missing. They're in the what? original. Yeah, they're what? in the original, but somehow. Um, um, Simonetta Poe made a translation of, of the book into Italian. So if you want to buy it in Italian, you can. Um, Excellent. She said, well, what's happened to this chapter about the Religious Technology Center and the International Finance Police and their dictator, of course, always my favorite post title in Scientology, <laughs> yes. International Finance Dictator. Um, yes. It, it, says, it does what it says on the tin, you know, they can. Um, <clears throat> so we sneak that back in we're not going to tell anybody about it obviously because we don't want them to realize the mistake we made also the footnotes on the 19th chapter heavy ethics were all over the show and um, it meant that I had to go through my old piles of auditor magazines from the early 60s mid 60s to find what these references were so <clears throat> it's basically been put back together again it, it I'm, I'm sad to, we put uh, Tony Ortega at the Underground Bunker has put up the missing chapter for anybody who's not got it. If you bought it in Kindle, you can just update it for free. And I'm very, very sorry. You know, I'd like to apologize <laughs> to Scavage and all of the international finance dictators since. Well, that is hilarious. I have to laugh because, of course, what you just said with missing pages, I just, I just lost it because... That is what Miscavige used to market, remarket all of Scientology's yeah. basic books, right? As he said, oh, there were missing information, bad edits, bad transcription. And of course, unlike what you just said, they made all Scientologists pay for the privilege of getting the new material or updated material or corrected material on all of those books to the tune of, you know, hundreds or even thousands of dollars for the, thousands if they added the lectures as well, you know. They were selling a, a, a basic set here for £2,000. That's right. And I, you know, I've got the first editions of nearly all of the books. And with a lot of them, you, you get this thing that, um, and my favorite is an Introduction to Scientology Ethics, which was originally a pamphlet. <laughs> That's right. It's a tiny little book. and then a big book. You know. but most, most of these books, they're, they're actually, Hubbard didn't write any of them. Um, the last book he wrote was Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health. Every book after that was 
compiled by an editor. That's right, so, because because it was something he dictated, if I understand it right. He recorded. He transcribed. He 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 recorded them. Yeah, he he just drank a bottle of rum or whiskey or something until he was inspired. Took some amphetamines, some barbiturates, you know, the research materials. Now, how on earth did he manage to research the the cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years in just two weeks. You know, that takes a lot of amphetamines to work that quickly, you know. But he'd just do that and, and uh, record it initially onto these little green discs. Um, right. I met a collector who actually had one of them. He said, you know, I, of course, we've got it on a cassette. We're never going to play it again, you know. And originally, Richard DeMille got those, and he wrote Science of Survival and two other books, How to Live Their Own Executive. Um, then Alfie Hart wrote 8.80. All the rest of John Sanborn. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Very and interesting. I, I was, uh, I was unfortunate because in tracking down people and looking up things, I uh, am a couple of years late in being able to get hold of some of these folks because uh, it's just too, you know, too much time has passed. Well, and luckily, some... luckily for you, I, I did take extensive notes. So yes. And yes. I, I, have some, I have recorded interviews with Otto Rose and John McMaster and Ken Urquhart, long interviews with them. Um, yes. And lots of letters from Don Rogers, who, of course, his appendix oh. appeared in Dianetics until the 1980s, the mind schematic. Right. And, um, he was a fasc fascinating correspondent because uh, he was there. He's the guy who gave me the title, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. Because that's what Hubbard said to him the day they opened the doors of the first foundation. Meaning, well, let's see what we think it means. Meaning we can sell them memberships of different grades. So even back then, you, you know, this patron's meritorious and this, that, and the other of these little levels, Hubbard was already thinking in those terms. You know, you can have a more exclusive access by being a platinum Dianeticist, you know, what have you. But Don was on every board until 1954. He never fell out with Hubbard. He's the only mm. person actually wow. who never fell out with Hubbard. And he said he left because his case was cracked, you know, and he, he did black and white processing in 1954 and said, right, I'm fine now. When I was corresponding with him in 84, he suddenly became interested in getting more auditing. And, and he sent me all of my letters back because he said, I know that they'll demand that I give them to them. Wow. Went, Don't do this. You know, he was like 78 years old or something and said, oh, yeah, I'll go and get a bit more, give them some money. You know? And wow. I never heard from him again because, of course, as he said, they'll make me disconnect from you. Right. And indeed they did. But I've still got, I think, 18 typed pages of letters from him where, for example, he says, well, up until writing the book, um, which was in the January, February of 1950, the only technique used by Ron Hubbard was deep trans hypnosis. Mm -hmm. The Dianetic technique wasn't tried out on anybody. And he goes from saying, he writes a letter in 1949, claiming to have worked 30 cases. And by the time Dianetics comes out, that's swelled to 273 cases, you know. Well, because 30 doesn't sound nearly as impressive as 273, you know. Exactly. And, and amphetamines allow you to do things a lot faster, apparently. You know? <laughs> apparently so, yeah. Well, Interesting. Well, I've been... We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> I, I no, will, no. One thing which I do say, which is that as yet, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky is the only history of Scientology. Mm. Uh, and Brightman kind of pilfered some bits from it and claimed to have written a 
a history but nobody else has written a history there are lots of phenomenal first person accounts in your mm -hmm. own excellent book too um you know i i particularly like um mark headley's blown for good because it's so funny yes um, shows you the inner workings jeff hawkins john Dignan. there are lots of really good books but this is a history this isn't a personal account it's got a few chapters at the beginning and you go through it you know blow by blow how hubbard created this organization and sucked people into it and did what he did so i recommend it on on that basis that if you're coming out of Scientology, it's good to see just how much contradiction and conflict there is in what hubbard was saying you know and that usually breaks people free from you know any obsession with hubbard and then of course you've got russell miller's excellent barefaced messiah which is based upon let's sell these people a piece of blue sky i even have his annotated copy of it because it came back to me um, right and right. i worked him throughout the 18 months he worked on that book and a brilliant researcher as, as was his wife uh, renata we amazing things happen we the interview that he got with hubbard's aunt margaret roberts that was really show-stopping you know finding out what a pleasant childhood run hubbard had had you know and he had no reason to turn so nasty you know <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, without question, uh, Bareface Messiah by Russell Miller and your book, Piece of Blue Sky by uh, John Atack, top of the list of any, of any books that must be read uh, in, if you want to understand, really understand, uh, what Scientology is all about. Yeah. You know, you, you cannot without those two books. You just, you just can't get it. So, uh, and then, of course, third is my book. So, yes, so cool. there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, now uh, let's talk about, uh, let's switch gears a bit here because um, you are working the Open Minds Foundation. We've talked about that before, discussed that, but what is the latest and greatest there? What's happening? Well, our focus has been on um, really how, how do you get this over to people? It, it, it seems, it, it, it comes down to there's a single obstacle to understanding all of the tricks that are, that are going on in, in these scamming organizations and these con artists people in abusive relationships and that is our own level of self-deception um that uh, psychologists talk about lacunae which the we mortals call uh, blind spots um that oh what is invisible to us the what you know what is going on so you've got this this situation where we talk about something like confirmation bias, the tendency to only accept information that agrees with what we believe. Right. Um, the foundation of the famous cognitive dissonance. And that tendency, of course, is invisible to the individual who has it. So you don't know. And how do you persuade somebody to look at that in themselves? And that's, you know, there are tens of sites out there trying to explain you know, cognitive dissonance and critical thinking. But if you say to somebody, um, are you being manipulated? Then the answer will be no. If you say to somebody, you know, often somebody who's involved in a, in a da dangerous high demand group will say, but, but do I look brainwashed? And the answer right. to that, as Steve Hassan pointed out many years ago is, how would you know if you'd been brainwashed? And the point is, it's that invisibility that you have to get through. If you then try and talk about uh, hypnosis, 
then that immediately puts up a tremendous barrier for most people because they know that, that it works on other people, but it wouldn't work on me. And it's as right. if you're talking about the dark arts of magic all of a sudden. You know, this is <laughs> an enchantment, right. a spell that's being put on somebody. And it probably is, frankly. It probably is in that, you know, that most enchantment and magic, most voodoo, really is bringing about a state where somebody comes to believe things strenuously that can then actually, you know, in, in voodoo, and we, we hear of people dying because they've been cursed and they simply deteriorate and die. And I'm not dismissing the religion of Vodouin, by the way. I, I don't have the 1930s zombie attitude towards it. It is a very sophisticated set of beliefs. Um, there's a, a book by um, Maya Deren um, about it, which is extremely good. You know, Interesting. Just in case anybody wants to go and read up on Vodou. Um, Nonetheless, there is this, you know, that we, we act within our community, we act within our group, and we have all of these mechanisms that have been so well investigated, like groupthink, you know, the, the tendency to simply accept what the group says, milieu control, as it, it becomes in Robert J. Lifton's um, thought reform model. Mm -hmm. um, and we of, tend of, which, of which, like, peer pressure and that sort of thing and social hierarchy are parts of that groupthink yeah. model you know it, like we we definitely know that is a thing it's not just some theoretical well, you've, got, you've got the little experiment where you get a group of people to sit on chairs and they stand up every minute and as new people come and sit on the chairs by them they will automatically stand up with them that's without right. any questions to why they're doing it that's right um, you have solomon ash's experiment with the lines where everybody in the group says no no they're all the same length and they they person who's been pulled into the group will usually two-thirds of the time probably maybe a bit more agree that they'll they'll start going they'll start seeing what they're told to see mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to see that happening to other people but psychologists you're know, fantastic at coming up with babble to describe things talk about the fundamental attribution error and when you look at definite you look at the wikipedia definition of that and it's like what on earth are they talking about Basically, what they're talking about is if I'm late for a meeting, then it's because circumstances prevented me from getting there on time. If you're late for a meeting, it's because you're deliberately spiting me. You know, and we have right. this telescope through which we see the world that minimizes our own actions and maximizes other people's. How do you get through that? That's been the obstacle that, you know, we've been working with now. We've had three years of working and you know, I've been writing about it and writing about it and appearing on podcasts and doing everything I can to get it over. And I realized that that reluctance, that inability to kind of go, well, maybe that means me, means that you have to show it in a different way. You have to say, not are you being manipulated, but is anybody you know being manipulated? And at that point, so, you know, it's like, are you gullible? Bring it, bring gullible. it closer to the person though. It allows the person to say, well, maybe if I knew more about this, then I could help my friend who is right. gullible, unlike me. Um, <laughs> this is the same thing as how we get people out of cults by educating them about 
other cults than the one they're involved in because then it's not so personal to the person the defense mechanisms don't come up and the oh you mean i'm wrong about something oh my god well that can't be so therefore you're the one who's wrong and i am right and this is a very powerful mechanism you know absolutely And, and it's innate it's not something that cults bring about it's something that's already there that can be tweaked i mean um Margaret Singer talks about, you know, that the most vulnerable people are the people who believe themselves to be invulnerable. And, you know, I can remember in when I was involved in Scientology that uh, a friend of mine who was involved actually disappeared for four years because he'd taken up with um, a, a new girlfriend who was a psychologist. And she said, you know, this is nonsense. Now, four years later, he phoned me up and said, look, I'm in a real mess and maybe Scientology could help me. And I talked with him and he'd married the girlfriend. And so I said, well, look, I'm going to have to talk with her, you know, and we're going to have to work out what her difficulties are so so that, you know, for you to do anything. And it was incredible. She she kind of went, well, all right, I'll have some of this auditing then. And I didn't give it to her. But um, she went and had an auditing session. She came out having gone in as a pretty much um, materialist, atheist she came out of that one session believing in reincarnation because she'd had a memory of being a fish apparently which is was interesting and so seeing that she'd protected herself against this thing and it was actually really easy to just um move her over into this other position i I had somebody when i was at art college you know i took a couple of years off i i was really Unlike, I wasn't a dedicated Sea Org member like you at any point, Chris. I was a namby-pamby, panty-waisted dilettante. And I went to art college for two years because it's the artist who injects the theta into the culture, as I used to tell the people who are trying to recruit me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's a, it was a valid defense in recruitment uh, because you could use Hubbard's words against the recruiters on that one. Yeah, Pete Griffiths and I had both memorized all of the things he said about artists so we could be excused. Yeah, uh, it did, but but while I was there, there was you know I would sit in a room full of a dozen students and say how great Scientology was, and this uh, one young woman said, oh no, they're they're dreadful. Well, sure enough, you know within a month she was on a course in Scientology. So I found that that this worked. That if people had this strong resistance, that could be used. Um, well, that's not entirely dissimilar to something an assertion I've made, which is uh, in fact that's. Just a couple of days ago, I made a video answering the, just to kind of finally put to rest this stupid question that gets asked uh, by very snide people sometimes. It's actually a very smart question when it's done out of true, genuine curiosity, but, mm. but it's also a very stupid question when it's asked snidely, which is, how could you be so stupid as to fall for Scientology, right? What kind of moron would fall for Scientology? And, and like I said, if it's, if it's honestly asked in a non-insulting way, it's a brilliant question because it gets right to the heart of how cults work. But when it's asked in this condescending, arrogant way, my attitude has always been, dude, you were the guy as a Scientologist. When I was a Scientologist and a Sea Org member, you were the guy I wanted to talk to first mm. because you think you're smarter better and more aware than anybody else i'm gonna get you into scientology so fast you are not even gonna believe how fast i'm gonna do it you know what i mean because i could play on that 
and uh, and people don't you know they don't they don't get how easy it is to to turn that motion you know turn that that whole condescension into how great they are and how much Scientology or whatever would help them mm. I mean, be I mean, even I, better I, you know I keep t- retelling the same stories but um, I interviewed a 19 year old guy who had been on the watchdog committee which was at that time in 81, the 14 people who worked directly under Ron Hubbard, uh, David Miscavige worked for them. Um, at that yeah, time. they were, that was the senior ecclesiastical body of Scientology yeah. at that time. There were 14 of them. And one day they had an order from Hubbard saying, I'm sorry, when World War Three happens, I'm only going to be able to save the people in, in this room. Everybody else will die. So, you know, bad news, isn't it, really? Wow. Uh, from the, the great man. And this guy left. He was 18 or 19 when he left. And he said, my parents brought me up in this. If there's going to be an apocalypse, I'm going to be with them. I don't want to, you know, and he's probably looking at the other 13 people in the room, but I don't want anything to do with these people. Um, wow. So I interviewed him over two, two nights and promised that I would never reveal his identity, and I never have. Um, nobody's no. I won't make a joke about this. It's probably best not to, because I'm all too often taken seriously when I make these little asides I've found. People come back to me years later and say, you said this. And I go, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> sense of humor. Of course, I don't sleep in a bed full of jelly, you know. Um, but, well, I'm glad nothing like that's ever happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of two nights of talking to him, he turned to me and said, "Isn't the great thing is John will never be conned again. And... I looked, he was selling insurance door to door at the time. Um, so I looked at him and said, no, no, no. The great thing is, I know I'm gullible. I know I can be taken in. That's right. Uh, That's the actual lesson. Yeah. And, and what Scientology, you know, my nine years in Scientology taught me that I was arrogant. That's what it taught me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm afraid it hasn't gone away yet, but I'm still working on it. You know. But, <laughs> As um, are we all. As are you know, we all. I, I hope they could <laughs> learned it in three weeks it, you know nine years was a bit you know elaborate but i i didn't suffer you know i'm the only ex-scientologist i know who didn't suffer mm-hmm. who wasn't abused who wasn't humiliated because i was never a living member you know so uh but then then you go to that next presumption which is uh i was talking to pierce redmond at uh, porkins policy review the other day and um you get get to this thing he said oh i, I saw this video you did where you said um that you don't really like being called uh, oh here's john atak an ex-scientologist and it's like well yeah it's 34 years since i left and it doesn't really define me very well and it's rather like saying i'm a i'm a former idiot <laughs> right <And> exactly <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and it's and it's true i mean you might as well say you know i'm a former boy scout i mean well, it's true but that was you know 40 years ago i mean come on you know let's 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 move on <laughs> And you may have been the first eagle, youngest Eagle Scout in the history of the movement. Yeah, right. Well, interesting. And in fact, this whole line of of what you're discussing here goes right into what I wanted to actually ask you about more, which is something I've been looking much more, taking a much harder look at over the last year or so, personally. And that is um, my own responsibility for, for what happened to me, right? And it's only possible to do something like this. I got to really stress this because this gets into very difficult territory um, because there is the potential when you start bringing this up of 
people hearing you wrong and hearing something different than what you're actually saying, right? I am not in any part of anything that you or I are going to be talking about in the rest of this podcast at all interested in victim shaming or victim blaming or it's all your fault or anything like that. That has nothing to do with what we're, what we're talking about here, right? But I am going to bring this up because I think it's important, and that is that you come to a point where you go, okay, yes, there is a destructive cult leader, and, and there is an abusive relationship that occurs, and the abuse is coming from the destructive cult leader. I'm not the one who is originating or creating the abuse, right? So... So no, you know, it's not a thing of, well, I'm, you know, it's, it's some kind of BDSM thing or something like that, and I'm just as responsible as he is. No. When you're victimized, you're victimized. But there is this thing of, well, I did put myself in that position. I did willingly go along with it. I did, I was gullible. I did fall into line with this. I put my own energy and effort into it. And I guess what it, the simplicity of what it comes down to for me in looking at this is, is if a destructive cult could be looked at as an abusive relationship between a leader and followers, a follower of followers, whether it's two people or 2,000 or 2 million, that leader can't do anything if he doesn't have followers. So that there is, a, there is some responsibility on the part of the followers for empowering that leader, giving him that authority and granting him that, that authority over them, and then acting accordingly, right? Until they come to a point where they go, okay, this is too much. I've, I've taken too much of this and I'm done. And then they leave and then they go, okay, that was abusive. I really can't believe I was even involved in that. What the hell just happened to me? And you come through this process of learning all about it and going, wow, I, you know, that, that, that person did these things to me or that group of people did these things to me. Those things were not okay, not acceptable, human rights violations even, sexual abuse violation, you know, all kinds of violations occur. And believe me, I am not talking about little kids here when I'm talking about, you know, you're responsible for your condition or some bullshit yeah. like that. Oh. I'm just trying to take a more objective look now at that relationship and how both ends of the relationship feed it. I guess that's kind of the analysis I'm looking at. And it's not a matter of trying to assign blame in looking at that relationship. So it's a nuance, you know, it's a, it's a careful thing. Because like I said, it could be very easily misconstrued that I'm going in a direction now of trying to blame victims or something. I'm just really trying to look more at how do we get, how do we fall into these situations? How do we get gullible enough or stupid enough or whatever to allow ourselves to fall into those kinds of things and feed into that relationship, our own money, time, energy, resources, until we snap out of it, you know? Because if I we don't, I think if we don't take some responsibility for it as the ones who were victimized, we will end up falling into something like that again. And very that's, much so. Very that's much the, so. Yeah, so it's kind of from an empowering point of view, I'm trying to look at this. Absolutely. So I mean, I've watched so many people cult hop. They, they yes. leave Scientology, they become involved with one or another independent group. Then another, you know, some of these groups like Avatar, which is still out there to my horror. Um, mm -hmm. I've been it, being alerted to this group, actually, Avatar. The last, I've been getting a bunch of emails. I'm going to look into this because yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it. There's a former mission holder, um, Harry yeah. Palmer, is it, who 
um, somewhere out on the East Coast, I think, who splintered in 83, 84. And there was a bit of a scandal because some of his staff members, even after he left, went to the newspapers and said, you know, there's horrible stuff going on here. He put out a course, which I think the first course was called the master's course. And the promise was that for $500, you would complete the bridge. You would achieve everything you could ever do. And you just sit there waiting. You go six months time, another $500, the wizard's course, and so on and so forth. Um, but he threatened, so I was told, uh, he threatened to reveal the ethics folders, the Scientology ethics folders of these, pre of these staff members if they didn't shut up. So you're into that same, you know, here I am saving the world and anybody that opposes me should be destroyed. Ruined right. up to, uh, that same pattern. The, the notion of, of followership as opposed to leadership has fascinated me too since I left. Indeed, in around about 1991, I wrote a novel, which I've, I've never published because I didn't feel I'd finished it, which was called Leaning Toward the Light. And the, the idea the novel was that a guy who was totally sincere became the focus of a group and the group still went wrong. You know, that even though he was doing the very best he could, there is a dynamic in human beings that will can make a group corrosive. So I was interested in that. As the years go by, of course, a topic, a subject came up and you can read about it. It's called Courageous Followership. Mm. There are a couple of books about it and uh, the man who started it is a man called Ari Chalef. Um, oh, he's was, a former Scientologist. Well, so people tell me. Um, I, I've heard that name before, that's for yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it's not some, he doesn't wish to be called an ex-Scientologist, and, and I can understand why. Um, it, yes, he had an association with Scientology up until uh, 1982. So, you know, he's, he's been out for a year longer than I have but that was because they threw him out and I actually followed him out because I was so incensed when I was asked to disconnect from him and I refused to do that. And I asked for his situation to be reviewed. But, you know, he's long away from any of that and he's doing remarkable work. Um, and he first of all wrote about courageous followership and this sort of, well, yeah, you know, we've got all of these books about leadership and being a good leader. Who's written about followership and being a good follower? Surely there are situations where, you know, followers do get ahead of themselves. He's worked with a lot of politicians, senior politicians, uh, in the last 35 years now. And so he's come to know the kind of power personalities. Um, he, he worked for Al Gore for a while before he was vice president. He's worked with many congressmen and he's met leaders from various countries. And he says, you know, they, they exude this kind of charisma, this power. I'm not so sure about that. I, I take the sociological point of view that charisma is something that's given to people, not something that they give off. But, you know, some people are more attractive than others, I suppose, in one way or another. Um, well, there, there is a there, I, I think, uh, and we don't need to get into some big debate on this right now, but I'll just comment that I think there is a thing, I think there is something to this terminology or concept of, of magnetism or personal magnetism or personal, you know, uh, personality. I mean, there's always this, this thing about, you know, like even Hubbard, for example, I mean, I've met people who met him, knew him, worked with him and they, and almost one for one, it, even if they hate him now, even if they despise everything he ever stood for, they will say, 
when he walked into a room, you knew it. You, yeah, you knew he was there. I you, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of a thing. You know? I've interviewed people who, who got quite the opposite uh, from sure. her. So, for example, while I was still involved, uh, this former Royal Navy officer wandered into a cafe I was in and sat down and started talking to me. And he said, oh, yeah, we boarded that ship in the Mediterranean. He said, terrible man, horrible man, stank. You know, that was his first impression. And then you get that Hubbard had the rotten teeth mm-hmm. and the awful body smell. And so these people who are experiencing charisma from him are gating their perceptions. Fair enough. And you can't, you know, if you, if you met him like this Navy officer and had never heard of him, your perception would be one thing. If you'd spent five years climbing the ranks to get there, then, you know, I remember Harvey Haber telling me that uh, his first meeting with Hubbard, he was at La Quinta in 77. Uh, I think we've been 77. And his job was to throw open the uh, shutters so the air conditioning could go on because they were filming in this barn. And, you know, with temperatures of 100 degrees outside, they had to switch all the aircon off because of the noise it would create. Right, when they were shooting film, yeah. Yeah, his job was to throw open the shutter. That's all he had to do. And he, he was so mesmerized by Hubbard's presence that he forgot to do it. And Hubbard screamed at him, what the effing, blinding, effing, blinding, MFing, what have you. <laughs> Hubbard was quite notorious for his charismatic speech, of course. Um, <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, well, it's, the, anyway, like I said, it's, a, it's a, you know, we don't need to get into a big debate but, about but, it, but no, it's, but a, see, it's, Harvey, a, it's... Harvey's response to that was really fascinating because as he described this to me, this is a point where he was setting up with David Mayo, the Advanced Ability Center, and all of this stuff. You could see that he was talking about a fantastic moment in his life. And I'm going, he stood there screaming at you, you know, that doesn't, that wouldn't have made me, you know. So charisma is, is you know, it, it's something that's given to people. And often when you get behind the scenes, when you're the president's personal aide or something, and you've seen the other side of it, you don't come away feeling they're tremendously charismatic. And so, yes, there are people who, I agree with you, there are people who have more personality. But the notion of charism, which is a spiritual power, an anointment that's given to a king or a pope. Yeah. mm. No, and I I agree with you. In fact, the whole point of this conversation is that it is a two-way street. So I'm totally tracking with you on that. I don't disagree that there is power given. And that there are people who have power, who, you know, or charisma, we'll say, right, a presence, uh, authority, right, who, uh, you know, might, you know, have some presence of, 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 of mind and, 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 and uh, social, sociality or whatever, who can put themselves out there and people take note of them. But, yeah, that's only going to go so far if people are not then feeding that. Yeah, I mean, Caligula... Nero, Tiberius, you know, go through a list of these monsters and they had right. charisma. What, what is this power and, and how does it emerge? I think that takes us into a fascinating area, which is, has been bewildering me recently, which is that I think that there are probably four levels of relationship for any human being. One of them is you look at a person as an individual, you know, outside of the, any context at all. And that gives you something. Then you have the, the close relationships, the friendships, the intimate relationships, 
in which what's called a folie à deux, a madness of two, can emerge. Then you have the groups, and in that you have a folie à plusieurs, the madness of many. And what we call cult groups are folies à plusieurs. Um, inside that, there are certain reactions, but there's one beyond that, which I will call the swarm. You could call it the herd, the pack. Gustave Le Bon, the founder of social psychology, social psychology in the 19th century, uh, whose books were read by, well, Mussolini gave the, the copy of his book, The Crowd, to Hitler, who kept it on his desk. Teddy Roosevelt made a special diversion when he visited France to meet the great Gustave Le Bon. And Le Bon said that the lowest common denominator of the crowd is the stupidest person in it, and that is the intellectual level of, of the crowd or swarm. If you put forward the idea that how is it that termites can build those astonishing mounds which have air conditioning in them? I mean, where does that come from? Where's the mind that is creating these remarkable structures? Mm -hmm. and it's like a group mind. And I suspect that as human beings, one of the other massively invisible influences upon us is the greater society. So. You know, I agree completely. I am totally tracking with what you're talking about because you're talking hive mind type, yes, type thing. Exactly. And we associate this with insects and lower life forms, but very few take the time to think about, oh, could such a thing exist in primates and, and with us, yes. right? Us, us advanced human beings. And I, I see it everywhere. So I have no problem with this theory. Well, it's, it's being, it used to be called mass hysteria. It's these days called mass sociogenic um, disorder. Um, my friend, Captor Ahmadova, who, who was working as, she was a psychology professor and therapist in Chechnya. And there was this case where at two ends of the country, at about the same time, two schools both came down with many pupils and even a few teachers with exactly the same set of horrible symptoms, including things like projectile vomiting and fits. And they were, a Russian psychiatrist came out and Kapta walked around quietly behind him, not wanting to get in any trouble. And he said, oh, they're, they're hysterical. And so she let him go away and then went, well, of course they're not hysterical because hysteria is an individual condition. How can these, how can a group of people develop these same symptoms? It took her two years uh, to get all of those people out of hospital again because they all believed they'd been poisoned by the Russians. Oh. Now, if you move that back and look to Loudon, um, Aldous Huxley wrote a wonderful book called The Devils of Loudon, which became the move, Ken Russell movie, The Devils. Um, one of the more watchable Ken Russell movies. God, it's not like Tommy. <laughs> Um, sorry about that. Um, uh -huh. But it's, a, it's about Urbain Grandier, who was a, a French priest who was accused of witchcraft by uh, the abbess of um, a convent. And her nuns came out and talked about him visiting them in spirit form and doing devious things with them. We have the Salem witch trials, um, the Pendle witch trial here in, in the UK, where a group of people come to believe something and they start exhibiting the same physiological symptoms. I'm pretty sure if you, you know, did fMRIs on them that you'd see the same brain patterns happening. It's right. the ability to just go into lockstep. 
Exactly. And I wonder, you know, just to just to take this out to the point of ludicrousness to demonstrate the point, I wonder if some kind of uh, of uh, you know snowball effect were to start happening mm-hmm. with some group like Scientology here, let's say in the United States, where it just took off. Somehow, somehow that happened. Maybe the president became a Scientologist or something, or some uh, you know major authority figure, Oprah. You know, okay, let's say Oprah. Let's say let's say Tom Cruise gets Oprah into Scientology. Right now, this sounds insane, and yet is it really? No, it's not insane at all. Tom Cruise has influence over Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey could think L. Ron Hubbard has a point and could promote Dianetics on her show. And that would absolutely cause, there is no question that would cause a boom best-selling craze with Dianetics. It would become a thing again, right? Despite everything we've been talking about. For years, well, Oprah, right? Oprah did do it. It wasn't Scientology. It was the book The Secret. Um, ah, this, you know, yes. which is it's based on exactly the same Christian science, new thought principles as Scientology yep. is. You know, which Hubbard in fact admitted in letters in the early fifties that he'd drawn this thing out of Christian science, which is basically you create the world. The world is is a consequence of your wishing. Now. Mm. As one grows up a little bit and thinks a bit more, the complexity of just seven billion human beings all being in step wishing this world into place is a bit much. If you then add all of the baby giant clams, and a giant clam has two billion babies, then that's a hell of a lot of wishing that's synchronized. It's like karma. Once you get into the synchronization of it, it's impossible. It's just impossible. Um, However, it's a nice, it somehow seems a natural belief, you know, yep. if yeah, the reason that fire happened in New York is because I thought about it yesterday, you know, and there are people who are locked up because they, they really do believe that everything that they have, um, solipsism, they believe everything in the world is generated by them. Mm-hmm. And this is a high order, very deep belief in Scientology, uh, as an example. Right. I mean, Scientologists are absolutely convinced that they are the ones creating their life, their world, the things around them and that everything that exists. I mean, I did this thing. I did a couple of videos on Scientology's idea of reality. Reality is agreement. Mm -hmm. Well, we all agree the universe is here and therefore the universe is here. That's, you know, like literally it's a cause effect relationship between our Mm -hmm. thinking or postulating and, you know, the existence of a thing uh, as opposed to we're just you know, <laughs> temporary passer throughs in, in this great big cosmic universe of ours, right? Uh, totally different point of view. So this is, so this is, Scientology is steeped in this, in this idea. And it, it, if you go back to the 19th century, there, you know, where the origins of Scientology and um, most of the, you know, the big movements of the 20th century, theosophy, for example. Yes. They, they originate when, little snippets of Eastern philosophy seep into the West. Yes. Now, you know, notably you've got Schopenhauer, who is the first post-Christian philosopher. So he picks up the Upanishads from India, which are quite remarkable to this day, written between 500 and 800 BC, and put forward a simple view, which is that the universe is a single self, and we're all aspects of that single self. We're all parts of that single self, okay. which is an interesting kind of way of looking at it, you know, it's all connected or what have you. Um, 
However, I realise that I'm a very, very, very small part of that individual self, you know, on a microscopic scale, really. And, and that doesn't bother me because it means I don't have to be responsible for the whole universe. Or anything <laughs> like right. It's a more, I think it's a more, uh, I mean, from what you just described there, I'd say that's a more realistic look at things than, you know, our, uh, us, our little tiny selves are creating all of this through our, you know, but it comes, it comes down to, there's a book called In Tune with the Infinite, written by a man called Ralph Waldo Trine, um, and written in, what, the 1880s or something. This book and many others like, like it have, now Oprah picked up the secret, and the secret right. says exactly this, you know, uh, wishing and hoping and praying and dreaming, that and I mean, I was, I was, and you've got the law of association that's come out of that. I was talking with um, somebody in the summer and I was, you know, making some sarcastic comment about this. And to my horror, I realized that she was actually a believer. She, she and her family were involved with the law of association. I said, well, you know, surely the problem is this, that whatever is bad that happens to you is your fault. And she said, oh, no, no, there are ways of explaining that. <laughs> it's like, okay, so the good stuff, you know, I've, I've wished for. Or, or you get, you know, Nishirin Shosu, uh, which Tina Turner was very involved with, where you have a Gohonzon or a scroll that you pray to. And it, it's like Janis Joplin, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz, you know. That's, or prosperity Christians who, right. you know, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, give everything you have to the poor. And they're going, well, if I pray long enough, I'm going to have me a porchy car. You know? That's right. That's right. And and sending the seed money into the televangelists and all that nonsense. Yeah. And so, and so it, disconnect, you know, Oprah has been there. Oprah did do it. I think The Secret sold some like 14 million copies yep. after she made it her book of the month. And it is that problem that John Travolta, Tom Cruise, whoever, are involved with Scientology. And people say, oh, I want to be like them. And you're going, right. why? You know, do, do you know what it's really like? Behind closed doors, you know, go and see what Leah Remini says about Tom Cruise getting pissy with his assistant because the cookie dough wasn't exactly exactly. I mean, if you want to be an overgrown child, then by all means follow in footsteps. Why on earth would Hollywood stars be people to follow? Because you know, how many of them? I think you know about half a dozen. Jack Lemmon and Paul Newman were probably quite decent people, but. Um, William Goldman, in writing, you know, wrote All the President's Men and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He said he'd only met two actors in his whole career who were human beings. <laughs> one of them was indeed Jack Lemmon. I don't remember who the other one was. He said they're all just these narcissistic cardboard cutouts, you know. Um, I think he probably exaggerated a little because <laughs> I personally like Jack Nicholson and Robin Williams and people like that. But um, yes. The, yes. the idea that they will be supremely enlightened because they've been in some movies, that's part of our followership. Exactly. Now, Coming back around to that. That's let's right. Do that. Let's do that in a big way. Yeah. I have a friend who, who um, Lady Daphne Vane, who who's very involved with the counter-cult world for many years. Wonderful woman. And I was talking with her one day 20 years ago and, and, and saying, it's the educational system, isn't it? You know? That's, that's what's at fault here. If we taught people better, then they wouldn't be susceptible. They certainly wouldn't be a lot, And that is a very common refrain these days. I, I have said and thought the exact same thing and had whole conversations about it. And I don't know that that's so true at this point. But what do you, 
Go, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, she, she went one further. She said, no, it's in their mother's milk. Really? We inherit this whole culture. And here we go. In terms of education, it's in the education system because obedience is still the central pillar of education. Because, you know, if you track it back, the basic thinking in the Judeo-Christian Islamic world, and it's not as bad in Islam as it is in Judaism and Christianity, um, is that we're born evil. That's we're right. We're born in sin, with original sin. So we have to be controlled. We have to be stopped from sinning. Freud did nothing to help this by inventing his monstrous id and all of, you know, this Jekyll and Hyde, absolute nonsense, which is the, the basis of the Freudian idea. Um, if you take that point of view, then you have to control people because otherwise they'll do nasty things. But the reality is, and here I would absolutely recommend Ken Robinson's books. He's written three bestsellers. He's a leading educationalist now, long retired, who's been involved with major programs. His, um, I think it's called Creative Schools, where he talks about tens of schools that have broken away from the standards movement in education. And they said, well, yeah, rather than passing the SATs, I was talking with Pierce the other day about um, the, the Wire, you know, the, the great David Simon uh, saga about Baltimore, the five-part series, The Wire, about the police and drugs. Yes. And he, as I said it, he said, I was thinking about the fourth season of The Wire too, where they get into the schools. Yes. And you've got a class where kids are just learning the answers to the SATs. They learn nothing about life or what to do. And they only had a class where... The kids have been pulled out because they're corner boys. And, you know, the, the retired policeman who's been pushed out for legalizing drugs in part of Baltimore, which is a great laugh, he's saying, no, no, they are educating themselves in what they need to know to live, you know? That's right. And what we're trying to teach them from their perception is kind of thought reform. It's kind of disabling their ability to live, doing all of this nonsense that will never be relevant to them. So the idea of making education relevant, but, you know, again, back to Ira Chalef, his last book was called Intelligent Disobedience. And it's posited on the idea of a, a guide dog um, that is trained so that when, you know, say the blind man who has this guide dog, the guide dog's got to be able to say, don't keep walking because you'll hit something. Right. So it's got to disobey. And, in one of his classes, somebody pointed this out and he sort of went, yeah, why don't we teach our five-year-olds to disobey? Why don't we teach them to say, hang on, I don't understand what's going on. Could you explain it? But instead we say, shut up and do as... That's I'm right. Oh, that, I, I have seen more instances of that out in the big wide world. And you always look at that and think there's something wrong with that. Hmm. You know, with the way children are, are abused... Or, or treat it. I mean, I'm not going to say it's all abuse, but you know, this, this is shut up, sit down, be quiet here. You know, I have, I have sat in a restaurant and heard a mother tell her kid that literally 20 times during the course of the meal. And I just, you know, and you want to say something, but at the same time, you're like, uh, social conventions and none of my business, blah, 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 blah. And so you don't get into it, but you just well, look at that me, and you just me, go, my, that's an effect. This is a guy who was a, the ski owner of the, the famous hat company, the Stetson family, made a lot of money apparently from the hat. And he said, look, if you're in a racist environment and somebody makes a horrible comment, 
don't look approvingly at them. You know, that's the first step. If you don't want to get into a fight, you can raise your eyebrows. So it's a matter of choosing a thing. I'm afraid I'm a bit more proactive if I, you know, sometimes if I, because I've got four kids and I've been through all of that. And if I, you know, there's a limit where I will actually, you know, the, the one is where, um, right, I'm going now, I'm going to leave you behind. And you've got some poor three-year-old being left 20, 30 yards behind with cars going by. So I go and walk by the three-year-old and stay by the three-year-old until mummy gets embarrassed enough to get the three-year-old back. Right, know? right. Because there's actual risk there sometimes. Obviously in a restaurant where they're just being nasty, what can you say? How can you teach them? Joe Campbell used to tell this story about sitting in a restaurant where some lad was told to drink his orange juice and the lad said, I don't want to drink it. And the dad says, uh, if I'd done any of the things I wanted to do, I've never done anything I wanted to do. And Joe Campbell's going, there you go. There it <laughs> is, that's right. Misery loves look- company. Yeah. And so it's passed on. But if if the schools, you know, we know so much now about kindness, you know, without getting into empathy, which I think is a total red herring, red herring, because it's a knee jerk reaction empathy. We need to be we need to consider what we're doing. We need to develop kindness. And what we found, even in treating, you know, young people have the callous and unemotional disorder, which becomes psychopathy on your 18th birthday, by the way, but before then you can't be diagnosed. Even kids in um, institutions for this, it has been demonstrated with a longitudinal study of hundreds of them, that those who are just bullied and pushed around the way that people are in prisons, because heck, they deserve it. When compared in, in reoffense rates to those who are treated with a compassion, you know, and kindness, the reoffense rates are way higher. In fact, one of the English reform schools had only a 10% reoffense rate over five years, where the normal offense rate is 80%. So the difference being, to be totally clear here, the difference being when you treat people with kindness and compassion, they do not become repeat offenders as often as when you are putting them in an abusive rehabilitation situation where the rehabilitation consists of just basically abusing them. Yes, and, and this terrible just world concept that, again, seems natural to human beings, that you know, if somebody's been a bad person, they deserve everything they get. And you know, seeing the Innocent, Innocence Project, are they up to 300 people now that have come out because they were not guilty? That's right. But that contempt with which somebody is treated, just as soon as you know, the, the compassion evaporates, and well, look now, I mean, at this at this point in time, we're at the place with social media where the accusation is all you need for guilt, to assign guilt on the part of, of way too many people. And I think, and this, and this uh, again, circles back around to the, uh, you know, the, the followership, yeah. right? Because the, who's the, creating that? The, the, you know, the person who makes the accusation or all the people who jump on board and create that situation of now this person has to quit their job and their life is ruined, rack, 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 merely by accusation, right? Well, we've, we've recently, you know, quite rightly, Hollywood is, is starting to pay attention to the amount of bu- abuse that has always gone on, the casting yep. couch yep. philosophy. And oh, I, for sure. Don't, don't get me wrong. That, that, needs, to be, that but, needs to be dealt with, too. But, but I mean, no, I'm, I'm it, agreeing it, with you that, that it's great that this is happening. But look at what's happened to Kevin Spacey so far. That 
there a number of accusations have been made against him. The original one by a journalist who was the mother of a boy who he allegedly had pushed onto a bed while fully clothed. And when the lad said, get off me, he got off. Mm -hmm. That, he suddenly dropped from House of Cards. Now, I believe that the justice system is, is the foundation of civilization, that if you corrupt the justice system, then you have a corrupt society. Um, I happen to live in one of the better places for the justice system, but you know, I found out how easy it is to be abused in that system when I was steamrolled through it by Scientology. I, I never had, never saw a trial. I n never was allowed to present evidence. My cases were wiped out on technicalities, which later, in fact, within six months, ceased to exist. Loopholes that could be used. So, you know, I have a certain bitterness, you might call it, towards the system. But I'm still very grateful that system's there. Now, in the U.S., you can be asked if you've ever been arrested. Not whether you've, you know, whether you've been found guilty of something, but you have to admit to having been arrested. How can that be proper if you are innocent until proven guilty? Right, Spacey's right. been accused of various things. There have, I believe, now been 11 accusations that have, or more that have come through the, the, the old Vic theatre that he ran for 10 or 11 years mm. in London. Though not one was made while, during the 10 or 11 years he ran it. There should be some kind of tribunal, some, but public opinion says this person is, you know, sexually abusive. With Harvey Weinstein, yeah, you know, <laughs> throw him to the dogs, you know. <laughs> He's admitted it. We know he did it. Um, but where, until something's been proven, and it is, it's that herd mentality. People put the addresses of uh, paedophiles on uh, line so that you can go and uh, make their lives more difficult. And with a complete, you know, and you get this statement in the media again and again, there's nothing you can do with the paedophile. They're completely incurable. And then you go, well, actually, that's far from the truth. That's very far from the truth because there are two different kinds of paedophile. One kind is the predatory paedophile of whom we are all, you know, horrified priests who abuse little boys, or, you know, what have you. Absolutely horrifying. The other are familial paedophiles, incestuous paedophiles, mm. who in many cases prove actually to really not have grasped what they were doing, to really believe that what they're doing is a sign of love and affection because they've really got the wrong end of the stick. They really have not understood, sometimes because they've been brought up in an environment of that type. But they are not you know, sadistic, abusing people, mm. same way. And they are quite curable. You can actually get it through to them. There's a wonderful book called Raising Parents by Patricia Crittenden, which gets into great depth on the counseling methods used with, with such people. Too. Interesting. So, you know, these social perceptions, this kind of, um, you know, somebody did something or other that makes them, you know, completely beyond the pale and they, we, we must have nothing to do with them you know they they spat on a flag or, or they you know they did something just oh god how could you do such a thing there, there's no redemption in that there's no allowance for change you know when somebody says oh here's john atak or chris shelton he's an ex-scientologist then people are going oh god yeah he must be gullible you know and i'm kind of going, look i left 34 years ago <laughs> right. 
Poor Chris was born into the damn thing, you know. How we sp and then you talk with people. I, I get into trouble because I'm an agnostic. It's the only safe place to be. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what it is. I don't tend to believe in the, the kind of God that um, I'm told about by my Christian friends because that God actually doesn't really marry with what I read in the Bible. You know, um, Maimonides writing in the 11th century, what have you, his opening paragraph paragraph in the um, Guide of the Perplexed is um, people don't understand that the creation in the image of God is not a physical thing. What is being created is a thinking mind, a moral consciousness. This is what is being said. And you go, oh, ooh, haven't thought about that. That's quite clever for a 12th century thinker or what have you. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, one man, people have a different God. I, I don't know about God. I don't know about that. Then you go to the other end and the idea that there's, you know, there was nothing, this brick emerged, it blew up, and here's the universe. It's easy to believe that, isn't it? It makes perfect sense, you know, that 100 billion <laughs> galaxies poured out of this brick that emerged out of nowhere. See, I have right. a problem with that too. When I sit down with people and I talk to them and they say, oh, no, it's the Big Bang. You see, that's how it all started. And I say, um, yeah, OK, without getting into brain theory, B-R-A-N-E, the 11 dimensions out of which the Big Bang came. You know, I can stun people into silence if I need to as well. <laughs> but without getting into that, um, this Big Bang, how do you know this is true? And they say, well, it's been proven. And I say, well, who proved it? And they'll say, Stephen Hawking. And I say, oh, and how did he prove it? And they might know, they might say, oh, well, he wrote a mathematical dissertation when he was 20 years old, which was the first mathematical proof of the Big Bang. That's how smart he is. Um, and I say, and have you read it? And oddly enough, I haven't met anybody yet who's read it. So you right. believe it because he says it. How is that different from believing the priest or a Bible or what have you? Let's right. get a little bit of humility into this picture and accept that, you know, as with Charles Darwin, I'm an agnostic. You know, he never arrived at atheism, despite what people are now saying. He said, I don't know. It's, it's too big a question. I'm just a human being. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, that's, and, and everything you're talking about right now is exactly my problem. And many people, many religious believers' problems with mil what I call militant atheists, the ones who are, who are asserting certainty on that which cannot be, we yeah. cannot be certain of. Yes, you know, and which is not all atheists, you know, but yes, I have definitely run into that. It's not even most atheists. And I think it's it's lamentable that uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, yes, Hitchens yes. and Sam Harris, a neuroscientist who should know better. And you hit it the nail on the head. They they trade in certainties. They say we are absolutely certain. I saw Dawkins introducing a TV series about 20 years ago, and he said, um, he's talking about suicide bombing, and he says, you know, without religion, we wouldn't have suicide bombing. Now, this was before 9-11, and at that time it was known that there were about 900 registered suicide bombings. It, they stocked the count in the uh, Iraq-Iran war, when Iran, mm. without the money, had 12-year-olds crawl under tanks with explosives on them, you know, horrifying. And then it spread as a tactic. But of those 900 or so suicide bombers, half of them were non-religious. The Tamil Tigers, the PKK in Kurdistan, right. the Al-Aqsa Brigades in Palestine are not actually a religious group, they're a secular group. So he 
he's arrived at this stage of knowledge where he's going to tell us and it is exactly that invisibility that self-certainty that makes us so vulnerable the belief that our own information is perfect and that's exactly exactly and now and now let's let's just bring this back because we're going to have to wrap up here shortly and i want to i really want to bring it back around to this point you were mentioning here of uh uh, you know, courageous followership, right? Um, because that certainty point that we were just talking about, I mean, everything we've been discussing here has some, is some element of this, you know, of this, of this followership, right? The, you know, you can go, well, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, I mean, I've, I've written about the certainty of Scientology, mm-hmm. right? And the certainty that it gave me, right? This sort of thing. Well, that's all L. Ron Hubbard's fault. Well, no, I took it. I used it. I assumed that certainty. I did not keep my critical thinking hat on. You know, I did not go, well, L. Ron Hubbard says this. It could be true. Let's take a look. Let's compare it with other things. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. I didn't do that. I just took it in and I said, absolutely. This is it. This is the bomb. This is the bomb diggity, you know. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna profess this to everyone on a soapbox and make sure they all get the word, right? And I'm going to, you know, put all my energy and my entire life into this, and I'm going to make this my own personal mission. Well, nobody forced me to do that. I did that. You did you do know? it, but I think there are you know various kind of ethical criteria that as you say, you shouldn't be blamed or victimized for having done that. So let's just no. over and say, let's just talk about responsibility. Right. And that responsibility lies in part with the individual, in part with the cult leader, and indeed the group around the cult leader. Exactly. Uh, tend to be in much better shape than the poor, battered, old, drunken, drugged up cult leader, which is sadly the way, you know, one after another, when you study the life of Rajneesh, you find it was Valium 50 milligrams a day plus a wow. shot of nitrous oxide, you know, that kept him going. Or you look at John Roger um, and MSIA. Again, you, 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 all sorts of prescription drugs going down there. These poor, sad shells of human beings, these malignant narcissists who just to, to know they're alive have to be adulated by other people. You know, not really the kind of thing. It, it was one of my problems with, with religion was, well, why would I worship anybody? You know, why would they want to be worshipped? You know, so when I met the Islamic notion that that Allah, Jehovah, call him what you will, uh, God creates the uni- creates the universe so that it can share in His beauty. That to me was a much more lovely idea than than somebody going, oh, "I'm so fantastic." You know, pray to me all the time. You know, that is a bit weird, you know. Yeah, the Old Testament God is a jealous God and this sort of thing, yes. I think he's probably every sort of God. I mean, there is the, you know, all evil comes from the Lord is one of the statements. And Satan, of course, only occurs twice in the Old Testament. Satan is the devils are very much a Christian, you know, probably taken in from Zoroastrianism, in fact. Right. Voice, you know, yet Neoplatonism, Zoroastrianism, the the ideas of Alexander the Great's followers, which had already gone into Judaism about resurrection. Religion is an evolving thing. It's one of the reasons I don't like Dawkins, because he's throwing away, or I don't like his ideas at least, he's throwing away this rich history that shows us how to think about things. So reading Machir Eliard's History of Religion, you've got, oh yeah, well, 
the next question would be um, is Jesus uh, the same as God does he have the same lifespan as God is he coeval and co-eternal with God and of course then you get the split into the so-called Arian heresy the people who took the Roman Empire over the the Western Empire the so-called barbarians they were Christians who were pissed off that the other Christians believed that Jesus was something more than the creation of God you know and any every idea you come to uh, when you have the host you have the the wine and the bread if the priest is impure is the blessing proper and will it transubstantiate into you know well it's called the donatist heresy that there were people who actually believed that if the priest was impure the host was no use <gasps> catholic church as dogma says no doesn't matter how many little boys he's fiddled he's it's still his blessing is virtuous because it comes from the charisma there's that word passed to him and i look at you know right through my life right from my teens i've read more and more of this stuff and it fascinates me if this then then what and right. you take now once you believe this you go that way now that's true for all of us in what we believe that we grow up with certain beliefs i, I remember being uh, shocked as a teenager to read Shisako Endo's book, The Silence, about Christians in Japan. Of course, Christianity was um, made illegal on, on pain of death in the 17th century in Japan. Any, any, you would be crucified if you were caught, and that would be you. And there were whole villages that actually hid for until the 1850s, where America bombed Japan back into the, the rest of the world. Huh. Um, that there were these cells existed for over a hundred years and he writes about it but what shocked me was that as a Japanese Christian in modern times there were definitely things he accepted culturally that to me are really weird and it made me realize that therefore my culture you know like it or not I'm seeing outward from my culture so you know go to China and think it's weird that you eat cheese you know, right. you eat dogs, you know, I mean, come on. And it, <laughs> right. well, why shouldn't I eat dogs? They're noisy, horrible. Um, That's right. But, and so many of our values are based on that. And, and, I, and, and people are just completely blind to it. They just accept, well, I grew up this way. This is how it is. You know, either familial, cultural, educational, you know, whatever the biases. I've called these, you know, our biases. I mean, that's what these things are. Yeah. And, they, and they come from all of these places. And we but, accept them. As a nat as natural, of course, this is how it is because this is how I was raised. How could it be any different? And then you look across the world and you go, "Well, they're a bunch of weirdos, and I don't want to have anything to do with them." And let's close the borders and let's shut everything down. And you know, this kind of isolationist, you know, insular thinking is is not healthy. Xenophobia or xenophobia, if you're an ex-Scientologist. <laughs> That's right. Um, Ken, Ken Burns in jazz, his great series Jazz, interviews a, a, a critic, a white critic, who grew up in Mississippi or wherever, you know, through the, the teens and 20s of, of the last century. And the guy says, you know, throughout my childhood, I was told that Negroes were a different species. Now, this was commonly believed into the 1950s. In fact. That's right. Unless right. you have the word genocide, you're not killing off a genus. That's a racist word. You know, you are, you know, races, that's a racist word. There are no races. There is only one species of human beings. We are completely interchangeable. You know, we can breed with one another. That's right. That's right. But, you know, so even the liberal terms can be wrong because they're, 
they've come from a culture. But this guy said, so I was told that these people were stupid. They're, they're kind of like apes. They're, you know, they're not. And then I saw Louis Armstrong playing. And I had to say, this is the first time I've seen a genius. You know, and his the cognitive dissonance, you know, his value system came apart. I think if if we could teach children to embrace dissonance, to say, oh, that's really interesting. That disagrees with what I think. But we even know that, it, it, well, we pretty much know that whenever a thought enters your head, there's some neural pathway that's created. So when anybody contradicts that, the first impression tends to stick. You know, I've, right. I've had many conversations with people where they said, well, this is the truth. And I said, well, what about this? And they're, no, no, you know, and you can show them, you know, when I left Scientology, the thing was, as soon as I realized that Hubbard had lied, as soon as I realized that, when I saw documentation that proved beyond any shadow of a doubt, and of course, it's in his own contradictions of himself, you know, where he says he, he left university, he's thrown out of university in one lecture, he claims to be a nuclear physicist in another one, you know, he says he, he saw no active service in one lecture and claims to be crippled and blind at the end of World War Two. As soon as I'd seen he was a liar, I didn't trust him. And I could not understand, as I went to all of my friends around me, my many, many friends around me, why wasn't it that easy? Because, you know, be, uh, well, here are these two stories he tells, which are at the same time. You know, he was down in Hollywood in July 45, beating three petty officers up, according to this thing in 57. And he was uh, crippled and blinded in Oak Knoll Hospital. That's right. And this one woman turned around to me and said, obviously, he had two bodies. Silly me. Why didn't I think of that? Oh, my God, of course somebody would say that. Yeah. And that rationalization, justification, you know, finding any damn thing that we can get hold of to say, I'm right. That's the bit that you have to chisel away at. That's right. It is the traditional notion of humility. If you're not willing to be wrong, if you're not willing to, you know, there's a famous John Wayne statement, uh, uh, never apologize, it's a sign of weakness, which... George Bush Sr. used to say. And uh, it's like, well, actually, it's in the movie She Wore a a Yellow Ribbon where where he goes to actually kill a young white woman who's been taken prisoner by the nasty natives, the American Indians, the Redskins, and he's going to kill her because she's been polluted by her contact with them. That's where he says, never apologize. And that's the character you're talking about, this kind of serial killer monster saying you never apologize. You have to learn to apologize. You have to learn to eat crow. You have to, if you are to be truthful with yourself, then you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to question the, the, you know, the unquestionable assumptions Exactly. And that is where we fall down. And that is how we end up empowering people, you know, to have authority and control over us who have no business having that kind of power and authority and control. But, you know, if we don't, if we don't look at our own failings, you know, that are going on up here, our own mistakes or errors, I don't even, you know, maybe failings is even the wrong word. I mean, you know, just the mistakes that we make, the, 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 the errors in judgment, the the, you know, the lie we chose to believe. And then when we find out it's a lie, we still choose to believe it. You know, these kinds of things are how we contribute to that picture. And we make this possible because we empower cult leaders to be cult leaders because they can't be a leader if we're not following. 
you know. You know, and you look through human history, it it, it really is quite scary, the things that people have done. You know, the the Roman games where every two days in every major city in the empire for 400 years, animals and ripped people apart for public entertainment. Now, what is that telling us about the mass of humanity? Right. Or, you know, when Voltaire, as far as I know, is the first person to criticize torture as part of the execution process. So you'd be, you know, at dawn, you'd be dragged out, hanged a little bit to get you cut down while still alive. Then you'd be dragged around the streets a bit and you'd have your entrails drawn, having been had your penis and your testicles chopped off you'd have your entrails drawn all your guts and burned in front of you and you're still alive and you know people went and this was a big street party so i think we need to be a little bit cautious about human nature and you know ready to understand that and get that if we taught kids to question things and again i don't get into this kind of there are these intelligent people and these stupid people that that's not my perception of humanity at all I've not met any of these stupid people. I've met kids with downs. I've, I've met, I've never met anybody, you know, that didn't have something to teach me, that didn't have a perception of the world that I don't have. And that could be somebody who, who may not even know how to talk. You know, they, they can be that restricted, but they can teach me something about their experience of the world. So not, you know, making that class structure that says clever, stupid, you know, that and of course there's me and my mates, you know, and, and then the stupid people. <laughs> That's that, right. You know, the reality is that, that we are all stupid, and the more intelligent we are, the better we are at defending our stupidity, at buttressing it, at, you know, preventing people from you know, doing it. In Scientology, I knew eight uh, medical doctors in the UK. I, one of my course supervisors was a, a PhD who worked for NASA. Indeed, there was a guy on the Apollo program, a senior guy. Uh, you look at the great musicians who've been involved in this group. Uh, Lee Tonis, right. for example, Chick Corea. Um, it, it's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got nothing to do with gullibility because we're human and we'll go along with what's happening around us to some extent. And we'll justify right. And we'll, through the fundamental attribution error, we'll go, well, I was actually being quite smart. You know, I had a friend who, who she said to me, uh, I never really believed in Scientology. This wonderful woman, Shiona Foxness, wonderful, wonderful woman, sadly long gone. And uh, she said, I never really believed in it. So I said, Shiona, so you sold your business and you gave all the money to Scientology. You then moved with your eight-year-old child to Los Angeles. You left your eight-year-old child in the care of complete nutcases. You worked a 90-hour week for, I think she got about $30 because she was way up in the executive. And, and yet, Jenna, what would you have done if you had believed in it? No. Exactly. Exactly. All right, John, we're going to wrap up here. This has been a, a fascinating talk, as always. And the only reason we're wrapping up is just because of time considerations, because, you know, we could just keep going on about this, uh, as we do. <laughs> yes, it's always good fun. I, I just hope it's not too tedious for... <laughs> No, you know, every single time I think we might have gotten into, you know, maybe some territory that might be over some people's heads, or maybe it's too deep, or maybe it's this or that. I tell you, the feedback almost one for one is, you know, God, I wish you guys would have talked longer. So, yeah, so we're just gonna, we're just gonna talk more often, that's all. 
All right, John. Well, thank you very much for being on board here. And let's just wrap up the show here. Um, folks, thanks very much for coming around. I very much would like to hear your feedback on everything and anything that we said here today. Whether it's good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the comment section on my YouTube channel or at sensiblyspeaking.com. John, thanks again for being on board. And Thank I'm you. sure if anybody wants to ask questions that we might talk about, you know, in a month or two when we next, you know, yep. I'm, I'm many questions. I don't particularly want to talk about Ron Hubbard and Scientology. No, if, we're... If, if there are questions about open minds or courageous followership or any of this, I'm very happy to try and field them with you. Beautiful, beautiful. We will definitely be talking again soon, probably in the next month or so. Sounds good to me, Chris. Awesome, Thanks man. So All right, talk to you. Bye bye.